This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Paul William Bradley, chairman and founder of Caprica International. In the final part of our conversation, Paul shared his thoughts on the fourth-party logistics 4PL and supply chain sector, mentoring entrepreneurs as an advisor, and the work he has done in contributing back to society. Welcome back. With me, Paul William Bradley, chairman of Caprica International. We started the first part talking about the Asia families and your experience moving from political to the business world of Asia and some of their interesting work and your philosophy on how to manage people. So in this second part, I'm just going to dive a little deeper into your expertise because your background has been all around the logistics and the supply chain. And to actually help my audience, I want to start off by asking you, what do you define as the 4PL for logistics because it actually helps my audience to understand the context better in the Asia. Well, if I may, I'd like to go through the evolution, my own evolution and the evolution of the industry at the same time. So when I finished graduate school, I decided instead of politics, I wanted to learn about international trade, connecting the world. And I joined American President Lines, one of the leading shipping lines at that time, and they had a management training program. And for half a year, based in Seattle, corporate headquarters in San Francisco slash Oakland, and in Secaucus, New Jersey, a small number of us, 12 of us, were rotated through every part of the business, from chassis repair to loading containers to typing bills of lading to planning the stowage and supervising stowage of a ship, the trains, and then working under each of the vice presidents and then a day with the CEO of the company. It was an amazing uh, training program. They invested a lot and it allowed me to see ground level, to touch every part of the industry. And I think this is so important that you have to understand each touch point of the business in logistics in order to be effective as a leader. Then I started in shipping. Then I moved to freight forwarding the documentation and coordinating shipments. And major accounts have included McDonald's for Asia and Exxon and DuPont and Dow and etc. And then from freight forwarding moved to integrated logistics where the IT comes in and you start monitoring the, the, the tracking of documents of cargo and playing with the movement. Then the next step is 3PL logistics where I set up businesses where we actually are, are working with shipping lines, air and ocean, freight forwarders underneath us. And we're coordinating warehousing, but we're also working with other companies. And I keep getting bored. I keep getting restless. I keep thinking there's more to this equation. And so I love the supply chain management space because we're looking at not just how a product moves, but how raw materials are sourced, the capital flow, the information flow, even the knowledge flow of, of people around that process. It, it's, it's four-dimensional. And still today, I think most people in the industry don't really understand the concept. So what 4PL does, when, when Dr. Victor Fung and Ben Chang asked me to set up a smaller experimental piece under the Ideas Group with a great dynamic team, 4PL, the model is you have to be neutral. 
So you're going to go in with the customer, and what we did is we went to the major MDs in Asia, or the heads of supply chain, and we said, let us analyze your entire business, the way product is sourced, how it flows, the cost of capital, your sales forecast, everything. Let us analyze it, and let us redesign how to execute this process in a whole different way, with cost savings, fixed and virtual. And then if you believe in that, give us at least three to five years to implement that solution under your head of supply chain. But our small team will be the integrator under you. And we will provide open book logistics. So this is critical. It has to be transparent. Everything is open. So the relationship with the customer is a very different level. So we will go in and we will integrate all of the activities with shipping, freight forwarders, documentation into one IT umbrella. So you can have visibility of everything moving. We may get better rates in some areas. The customer may get better rates in some areas. It's okay. We will use whichever rate is most effective. We will be unbiased. We will use warehouse space that's available, our own or other companies neutrally, open book. And we can shift and adapt those entities. If they, if they don't perform optimally, we can change them. So what's so unique in 4PL space, and there are very few companies in the world really doing this, you have to be neutral. You have to be transparent. We would charge a fee on what we manage, the value of product. We would get gain sharing, a, a small stake if, if we drove major new initiatives. You know, and then we would charge for normal coordinating of shipments. But the level of trust is so different with a the customer. They're sharing so much more information. And we have to be committed to constantly improving cost savings. Traditional logistics companies, they make money on the spreads of what they manage. It's not in their interest to cut costs because they're cutting their own revenue. But the 4PL model, we're constantly hunting for efficiency and new transformation, which helps the customer be competitive. We did this with Sarah Lee, we did it with Byersdorf, we did it with a number of other major companies. Later we worked with Gillette to create a regional hub. At that time with Diageo, with, with Wines and Spirits, beautiful operation which is still running with Lian Fong and they are just a leader in their space with Wines and Spirits. So this applies to every industry, pharmaceutical, vaccines. We even had a vaccine center where we would deploy vaccines around the region. So the 4PL model is the future. It, it, it moves with technology. It allows dynamic changes. And, and in the new economy, we don't just have a fixed factory that someone owns. We have what's called virtual factories, where I can go like Lee and Fulton has done. They can take 30% capacity that's unused at a factory and make it theirs. So Li and Fung basically set up networks with up to 20,000 virtual factories in 53 countries. I think the largest network in the world, according to the Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton case studies. And in today's economy, it's hard for people to understand we're moving beyond 4PL. What Dr. John Gatorna, who's a thought leader in the space, and I have, have brainstormed on many years ago, and recently again, we're moving into dynamic value networks, where technology is playing a bigger role, AI is coming into play, robotics is, is transforming the way product is produced, the algorithms are changing and how you manage the movement of products and rapidly adapt to different scenarios. 
Manufacturing can be in virtual factories. Foxconn's a great example where Apple and many other brands used shared facilities to produce their, their mobile phones and, and, and other technology. Foxconn has magnificent operations. You know, virtual manufacturing, fixed assets, all of this is converging. Mm -hmm. And very few people in the world understand this change. Is it because they conflict logistics being commoditized? Because in the 4PL model, when you're open, you're actually creating a different kind of value. Is it the misunderstanding of the lack of value? I think it's, more importantly, it's people being in a comfort zone. So logistics is moving product between points. And when you add IT and, and you improve the way it moves and you, you add hubs, or what I created, the concept of regional SCM hubbing, and floating warehouses. There are ways you can play with this inventory, but it's all a fixed process of shortening lead time of how you move product. The 4PL space forces you to look at things in the environment, to look at, at, at the level of understanding of, of the customer's business and external factors is much deeper. It's a discomfort zone. When you understand that space, and then you see where the new technology is driving, you realize the entire industry is about to be transformed. And most of the leaders in this space don't even realize how, how significant these changes are gonna be. Every single piece of the supply chain is now going to be attacked by small disruptors. They're attacking different parts of this. They're disrupting. And the big companies that have their spreads and have run beautiful operations for their customers, they don't even understand what's happening because these micro-technology entrepreneurs are coming in and attacking different spaces, right? You have companies like Fredos, which is starting to look at transparency and freight rates. You have a company, which I, I'm proud to serve on the board of, called Openport out of Hong Kong. And this is a company that is, that is managing the trucking networks in Asia transparently. Uh, with live tracking and automated documentation and tracking and performance measurements with full visibility. And then you're finding out that the traditional logistics companies had major spreads for coordinating basic activities, and that's inefficient. So I think this is just the first stage of transformation. 4PL is the first step in moving to new models of fixed and virtual assets, and orchestration of the supply chain. The next step is disruption across the supply chain linked to fixed and virtual infrastructure, then AI and robotics. Would you see the logistics infrastructure become more on demand than, and less optimized? Because in the traditional world, people when people think about logistics, they want to fix SLA for fleets. They think about last mile where you are coming from is going to be everything's going to be on demand you only use what you need and it's able to help you to save costs and at the same time be able to get the greatest value well see i see different models evolving simultaneously and, and and the beautiful thing is you can choose so from the disruptors we have amazon which has aggregated a whole different model where they have regional hubs but they, they have customers who pay the rental on those regional hubs. 
and they distribute just in time and, and, and they basically virtualize their costs with infrastructure. Now they're suddenly building their own infrastructure, their own, their own fleets of planes. And, and they're going to aggregate their own activities under that more efficiently than the companies they've been working with. And then, I believe, they're going to allow other companies to ride in on their new supply chain coattails at a different cost. Now, what will the impact be to the traditional logistics companies? Dramatic, right? What is Apple doing? They're using big data and they're pulling information around every store and, they're, and then they're using advanced algorithms and even first phase artificial intelligence to start planning how much product they need in every store. That's way beyond how most people are currently handling their activities. So you're already getting key companies breaking out, building new models, and then evolving those models going forward. So I call this dynamic value networks. These are all different touch points that create value. It's a blending of different networks and it's evolving into different options. There's not one solution. You have Amazon in 2015, February, got a patent and they're already deploying trucks that load with chemicals and they do 3D printing while they're going to your house to deliver the product. Your product's actually being printed in the truck. We're looking at not only 3D printing, some of which will be in regional hubs and even in people's homes, but we're also looking at visual dynamics. We're looking at the ability to see a hologram and to shop on a hologram and, and see yourself trying on clothes and then to order the product. So all of these technologies are just starting to break out. And, and I think there's so many ways they can evolve, right? Singapore, as a country, the government's thinking how Singapore can keep an advanced role in this space. And I think they're really good at it. And it's how they build the relationships globally that will enable this. But there's no one path now that's happening. It's multiple paths, multiple options. And the majority of people in our industry are still thinking about freight forwarding and logistics and warehousing and at most advanced 3PL. So I think there's a major disconnect in space. And I think the thought leaders in this industry are going to break out with significant advantages. You talk about open pot. I met the CEO Max in a different capacity, professional capacity, I would say. How do you mentor the startup founders that you work with? This is probably the part of the conversation I'm very curious to know because they probably have a view of disrupting the logistics space. I like the open pot model because it's actually on-demand logistics to me. So I could actually, if I'm a big brand, I just select through their software, I could actually select who I can work with and I'll be able to get access to different kinds of the pieces of, this, of the logistics supply chain. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, first, let me go macro. I, I think the beautiful thing in the new economy is we all are learning from each other. So one of the reasons I'm not just doing supply chain, but I'm also touching investment banking and restructuring SMEs and CEO mentoring and working with startups is I'm learning at the same time. I get to learn about each business. Each tech startup is teaching me while I'm sharing knowledge to them. It's a fantastic way of all of us getting smarter while we benefit each other, right? That's so important. And I guess that gets me really excited. I'm mentoring a number of really superb startups in different spaces, including students at, at SMU and some in the United States who are doing really interesting businesses. 
it's moving across fintech, logistics, uh, luxury manufacturing. They all have a passion. And so what I try to do with each of them is we're building a trust factor where we understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. I've created multiple companies in Asia. I've started seven companies so far, and, and I've managed businesses in 14 countries, and I've done two IPOs uh, with groups uh, in Hong Kong and India. So, so these are experiences where I can add value, but I'm learning from them at the same time. And it's a question of, I, I think a lot of the startups have a lot of passion and momentum, and they're so busy in the day-to-day, -day, they forget the value of the strategic plan. And they also need tactical execution paths. And they also need to tell their story better, right? If you want to access capital, you have to tell your story better. And you have to know that it's different than just running a business. So a lot of startups fail because they're really busy, but they're not breaking out in a measurable way. And they're not telling their story. If you tell your story optimally, you change the P ratio. Because what is the value of a startup? It's the belief that those founders will turn to reality what their vision is, and they're building case studies to validate that. So how well you tell that story changes the implied valuation of your company until you're at a different level. So these are things on a macro level that I think are really exciting. Openport is an example of someone who's really experienced in the industry, who is running marketing for all of Asia. Max has been you know, in, in several major global leading companies. And he decided that he, out of frustration, he didn't like the fact that trucking was being managed traditionally and with all these hidden spreads and the customers were basically being impacted in an unfair way. And he decided that he would take the risk of quitting his job, starting a new business and attacking that space of inefficiency in Asia which is really bold and courageous. And he and I actually met up several times at Starbucks and shared his ideas and I just gave my, my critiques a little bit. And then he went full steam into this. We've added Morton who came out of, out of uh, agility as an MD. So we're getting a new generation. We're getting some fantastic new generation leaders. This is a business in Southern China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, India, Pakistan. It's only 14 months old. We're already past series A moving to Series B, hopefully later this year. And so this is where we work together and, and, and we walk through issues and we plan strategy and I'm just helping. They're building it and I'm just helping where I can. So it's, it's really fun and exciting to see how they're building a new model in the transport space. And there are many others like that. And that's my goal is to work with the radicals who are driving disruption because that's where the new economy is coming from. I would not want to ask you what is the advice that you would give to the founders and tell them what they would do. So what I'm very interested to know is what is the advice that you could give them to tell them what not to do? <laughs> I would say what I, it, it, the founder is building their own company and their DNA and it has to be their DNA. So outside people, no matter how well-intentioned, cannot try to put their values and their structure into the company. That's not being a good board member or, or a strategic advisor. It's trying to build something that's not yours. I think every founder has to have their own excitement, their own vision, and their own personality is going to affect the business they create. So the first thing is reading that person. 
and understanding their strengths and weaknesses. And that's where maybe my political background helps a little bit. Dealing with that environment and how you read people is so critical. When you know their skills and their personality, how do you help them build a company in their image? And how do you help them take their ideas but put it in a more long-term structure and to have the right measurement tools? And by pulsing, sometimes you'll, you'll see people in the organization that have more hidden talent that you want to suggest. Maybe they, they give more time to unleash them. And you may find pulsing that there are a couple people who may not fit and could damage the culture. So these are probing actions in an advisory role, right? But, but the company and the founder, they're driving their DNA. And, and I think part of advice on what are mistakes to share is to share stories about things we've learned from our own experiences. We've all made mistakes and we have to learn from them. So sharing that helps minimize new founders from making those mistakes. But part of it also is just when a challenge comes, when a crisis comes, to be able to talk on the phone or in person and listen and walk through those challenges with the CEO and just to be there to help them when they need it. But ultimately, they have to make the decision because it's their destiny. That's my view. I want to get to the last part of the conversation, which I'm very curious because I know you're a person who gives back to the community. So we are involved with the B20 group. I think I'll leave it to you to explain what it is and also with the Cairo Society in ASEAN. Can you talk a little bit about more about giving back to the community and what, what, what have you been doing in this space? Uh, it's just my personal view that any leader should not only think about money, you should think about how you grow the people in your organization because that creates a successful company and prosperity. But also, the DNA of a company should include empathy and realizing that we have a moral obligation in society. So my school, Thunderbird, we actually have an oath when we get our MBA in global management. We take an oath that we will be leaders of ethical organizations and we will use our organizations to benefit society, which is very unique. We're the first business school in the world to have an oath that you take before you get your diploma. But I, I believe in that. So when I was in college, I was involved in the Big Brothers program where we worked with kids from broken homes and with the elderly. And when I, some of the companies I, I've worked with here, we once did an Orphan's Day in here in Singapore. And we actually went to an orphanage, volunteers from our company, we brought in food caterer, ice cream trucks, toys, and we spent eight or nine hours with the kids. Now, something very simple. But it changed the impact of our organization. The people who participated in that, they were just so motivated and they became more sensitive of how they treated others in their own organization. And then they wanted to do their own things. I, I worked with someone who's a brilliant young entrepreneur. He was recognized at the cover of the Straits Times and even mentioned by the Minister of Defense in Singapore, uh, Jeremy Chua. He created the SG Hayes. When we had the Hayes crisis in Singapore, we were talking over coffee on his, his school strategy, and he said, I'm gonna solve this in the next 48 hours. And he got people around the world to bring in masks. And he set up a network of 350 volunteers that distributed air masks to help the elderly and children. And he was recognized by the Prime Minister's office and the Minister of Defense. Mm -hmm. These are great things. 
And that's going to be a leader who's going to build businesses, but with the right values. I think it's very important how we give back. So one of the things I do is I'm on the advisory board of two universities. One is Thunderbird, my old school, and uh, in the U.S. with campuses around the world. And the other is SPJ, School of Global Management, which is uh, one of the leading Indian business schools with campuses in four countries. And it's my way of helping the new generation unleash the next potential. And when I'm at the schools, I'm learning about what they're thinking, what the professors and the students are thinking, what's coming up before it's real. So I'm benefiting from this. But more importantly, I just want to be involved with these schools. How are we going to reach out and unleash more entrepreneurs in the future? The Cairo Society is fantastic because it started in Silicon Valley, three top schools, and it's gone global. And, and the idea was from the founders, it's nonprofit, and the idea was let's identify the best and brightest young entrepreneurs at the top universities and by invitation only bring them together, link them with mentors, link them with angel investor networks, and controlled collision, bring them together the best and brightest, to become friends, to share their knowledge, to build relationships. And this is now global. And in the ASEAN region, we have a great group that's running the executive board. Two are national scholars of Singapore. All are entrepreneurs. And between age 25, 30, they're the executive board, and a couple of us are on the advisory board helping them. And they're doing a great job, and we've now built a whole network already of over 130 entrepreneurs, best and brightest, across the whole ASEAN region. These members get together. They did a 10-day trip around the region. Google and others supported it, and Banyan Tree. And they also will be invited to the uh, global event, which this year we'll, we'll have a private event on the floor of the stock exchange, New York Stock Exchange, wow. and a who's who of, of government and business leaders. So we're building communities, clusters of, of new generation entrepreneurs. The, the B20 was a bit of a surprise for me. I was nominated and I was accepted to serve on one of the five task forces. I'm on the Employment and Education Task Force of the B20, uh, this year headed by the German government. Yeah. So the five task forces, each one is in a different space recommending policies to the G20 heads of state leaders who are meeting in July in uh, Hamburg, Germany this year. So uh, from around the world, each task force has about 30 members. Our first meeting was at the United Nations in Geneva, follow-up meetings, and our final one will be in Berlin in May. And we're looking at employment and education. What are the future trends that are affecting the employment market with AI, robotics, new technologies, even trade, and all of these issues that are having an impact, and the supply chain? And how do we need to evolve the education system? And this is for the 20 uh, leading countries that meet. And so it's quite an exciting role where I'm flying out, I'm meeting with these people, and, and then the five task forces will recommend policy proposals for the G20 heads of state to consider when they meet in July. So it's uh, something that I feel very uh, happy about being involved in in a very small way to contribute with some of the future thoughts coming up with the leading countries. Paul, thank you for coming on the show and really share your insights as your work, starting from politics, going into businesses in Asia, your thoughts on the logistics space and also how to guide the 
next generation of entrepreneurs and of course your community work as well. And, and I, I just want to add one final point and that is being part of multicultural organizations is an incredible gift and learning to appreciate what makes each culture unique and seeing the opportunity of free trade, connecting all the countries, I'm a big believer in that. As a leader, we need to surround ourselves with people who are better than us, but we need to inspire and motivate them to see the future. And we need to build organizations that have ethics, that are well run, and also that respect the value of everyone in the organization. The best role of being a leader is to unleash the talent of others and then to see how their lives change in the future. So I really appreciate the time with you today. I always have my last question. How do my audience find you? You can catch me on my website, capricainternational.com. And I also have Facebook and LinkedIn connections. And I'll definitely add that to the show notes. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Twitter at AnalyzeAsia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-A-S-I-A. And of course, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and TuneIn, and of course, Google Play in the US market. Once again, Paul, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure to be here.